Well, hello again and welcome to one of our bird bites, our first bird bite of 2021, and indeed our first post-Brexit bird bite. And to kick off this series of bird bites, um, um, John, very happy, very happy to be joined by David Hennig. Uh, David is British. Uh, he's a former civil servant. He worked before 2016 on some of the Brexit issues. And previously, uh, he worked on the uh, transatlantic uh, partnership that was being discussed, the trade deal between the EU and the US that was being discussed, and that, uh, for the moment anyway, came to nothing. As you know, we're three weeks into Brexit, real Brexit as opposed to phony Brexit that we had for the last four years where nothing much happened. Um, and already in the three weeks, we've seen Scottish fishermen who were ardently pro-Brexit, complaining that their trade has been ruined by the deal that Boris Johnson done with the EU. We've seen other UK food exporters complaining about truckloads of meat rotting on the docks in Rotterdam. Um, we're seeing British musicians complaining that the deal that the UK government did with the EU uh, has prevented them or will prevent them um, gigging in Europe. Ironically, one of the loudest voices in complaining about this is Roger Daltrey of The Who, who was a, an ardent pro-Brexiteer. So one of the benefits of Brexit for us Europeans is that we won't have to listen to Daltrey. But that's a side benefit. Um, so tell me, David, what's happening? I see that the UK government say that these are teething problems, that we get over them, we forget about them. Are they teething problems or is this the way things are going to be for the future? Tom, these are teething problems and they are the way this is going to be for the future. Seamless trade between the UK and the EU is over. Or more precisely, seamless trade between Great Britain and the EU is over because it's different for, for Northern Ireland. But from now on, there's checks. And as we know, when there's checks on goods, there can be delays, there can be missing paperwork, there can be wrong paperwork. And if you're used to, as UK seafood producers, Scottish seafood producers, we're used to just putting it in a truck and in Scotland and 20 hours later, it's in the, uh, the main fish market in, in Boulogne. That's no longer going to be the case. So that seamless trade is over. Um, there are inevitable teething troubles, but even once they've gone, you are having extra costs on UK suppliers of food and drink products in particular, but pretty much any product. You've got risks that you're going to get delays at the border. Um, this is a new, this is a new uh, type of trade coming between the UK and the EU. It is going to probably mean less trade. It's going to mean a lot of people from the EU are looking elsewhere for their goods, and it's going to mean people in the UK are looking elsewhere for their goods. So all change, really, in, in UK-EU trade relations. Well, let's stay with the Scottish fishermen just for a moment, because it is, it's a graphic one, and people can relate to it easily. Uh, so, for instance, uh, I think Scottish salmon farming, in terms of export, is worth about a million pounds a day, and they could have put those salmon on a truck, along with langoustines and other shellfish, and they would have been in the auction market in Bologna, Surmera within within 24 hours. Now, even when the paperwork is sorted out, let's say we get 
more efficient computer systems and so on. It's still going to be 48 hours, isn't it? It's going to be at least two to three days before what took 24 hours will now take 48. Yeah, it's going to take longer. So you have to have your vet inspections and you have to have the, the paperwork there. Beforehand, you had to you you had the situation where you could put any different products in a lorry. So you've basically got lorries with multiple loads running in, um, uh, picking up from different Scottish producers and taking them down and taking them down to France. Now, when you get you know they're going to need permits to get into uh, to Kent to get even close to the ferry or the train, however they're going to get over to uh, to France, then they're going to be checked to make sure they filled in the paperwork to even be allowed onto the service into France. On arrival in France, they're going to be checked again because there's no special treatment for UK food exports into France. So um, a lot of them are checked on, on arrival. So yes, add all of that up and it's going to take longer. That's if you can even get the transport because at the moment you've got a problem, which is that you have a highly efficient system of logistics running all around Europe, but that included between the UK and France whereby the lorries that are bringing seafood from Scotland to France are returning from France with I don't not quite who knows what, so that they're doing, a, you know, both ways they're, be, they're being laden. You've got hauliers who are saying they don't necessarily want to go into the UK anymore just in case they get stopped at, at the border. So there's basically a whole system there that has to be rebuilt that no longer applies. That is going to take time. And so for, for some point you may get it carries on, but it takes a day longer and some money is given by the UK government to uh, kind of ease this. But after a while, yeah, they're going to realise it costs extra. It's more uncertain. Do we still want to get the, the seafood from Scotland or not? Yeah. And of course, of course, those of us who live in France are going to say, we're not going to eat two day old salmon, you know, when we're used to eating day old salmon and so on. How extensive, by the way, are the veterinary checks? Do they have to examine every item? No, the I mean generally the average is about is is about thirty percent I, be, I believe, but it's it's different for different products. But here's the thing: in the UK EU deal, there is no reduction. So for foodstuffs coming in from New Zealand, for example, the EU and New Zealand have negotiated a deal where inspections are down to only one percent. UK and the EU did not negotiate that because the UK wanted to be open to negotiate stuff with other people, primarily the US. So we get full full checks. So that's usually all the paperwork checked, 30 to 50% of the actual product checked on, on arrival. And bear in mind, in the first three weeks of trade, there's been less trade than expected because some, uh, uh, some folk have not been sending uh, products over. We can easily expect queues in the future hasn't quite happened yet because there's been a kind of post new year lull yeah and i presume as well that like all things human that a truck crosses from calais from dover to calais and it happens to be stopped by a french customs man who's had a bad day or a bad night or whatever and he decides to be particularly uh, thorough you know uh, and the inspections run a little bit more deeper than they might normally do. That's human life, isn't it? I'm sure that would never happen. Of course that ain't. Oh, of course they, that, sort of, that sort of stuff happens. Or people turn up 15 minutes late of outside somebody's working hours. Yeah. You know, or the fact is that most of our vets working in Scotland happen to be Spanish, I believe. And so some of them decide that, you know, there's good jobs going back in Spain or whatever. Uh, yeah. That's the thing. Before, you didn't have any of these checks. So you could be pretty sure that 
apart from the lorry, the transport failing, the lorry breaking down or the, the ferry or the train failing, you could definitely get that product. Seamlessly, yeah. nothing could go wrong. Now you're putting kind of 20 different checks into the process. That's 20 things that can go wrong in the uh, in the process, which is why I'm saying even if the teething troubles are sorted out, it's never going back to where it was because one of those fails. Well, 20 processes, you're more likely to get on failure than before when you had only a couple of things that could go wrong. Yeah, inter interestingly, uh, as you know, I live in France and a week or so ago, I was driving across to a, a shop called Grand which specializes in uh, fresh fruit and vegetables and uh, meat and so on. Oh, by the way, not an empty shelf in sight, right? And uh, I was driving on the motorway and suddenly I noticed, what's this? And every 500 yards, the French have installed a port-a-loo, right, on the motorway. This is about 20 kilometers from Dunkirk and 50 kilometers from Calais. And I know why they're there. They're expecting queues of trucks at some stage in the near future. And they're you know, us French, we're concerned about the humanity and the decency of the truck drivers and making provisions for them. But like the French are expecting queues on this side, never mind the other side. And you know why it hasn't happened yet? We haven't in the UK started uh, bringing in those checks yet. They're not expected until July the 1st. So uh, that's that's preparation. And uh, yeah, the UK have been pretty badly uh, prepared because there was a there was a Brexit argument to be won in which people were denying that these checks would happen. So we're not particularly prepared yet. We still don't have the, uh, the the toilets and all the facilities in place. And again, that's putting off the uh, the hauliers. A lot of the hauliers are Polish and Ru and Romanian. Um, they don't want to get stuck for three days yeah. on uh, on a French motorway or indeed a UK motorway. Yeah. So we've been talking about sending um, food from Scotland, but take it the other way. Yeah, you mentioned there a moment ago that so far the UK hasn't introduced border controls, and I think they decided that they'd not kick in until the 1st of July. Um, there's a great deal of British industry depending on European supply chains built on a just-in-time basis. They're all going to fall apart, aren't they? Look, I can't. you can't speak for absolutely every different kind of supply chain that is going on between the, the UK and the EU. They're just, there's a huge range of trade. We've got 670 billion a year of trade that we had in 2019 between the UK and the EU. Add in Norway, Switzerland, uh, Turkey, the country pretty associated with the EU, you get over 700 billion. Over two, you get over 2 billion of trade a day running this way, it's good services. Now that's going to be really variable as to uh, as to how that's going to be affected by this by the new barriers. But yes, if you've got a complex arrangement of goods moving constantly to and fro between the uh, the UK and the EU, you're going to have problems. They are going to get broken up in some way, or they're going to cost more. They're going to be more uncertain. And so, depending on exactly what kind of um, arrangements you've got going on, these supply chains are going to be stretched. Or frankly, people are going to think of replacing them. There is an investment lag in a lot of these things, so they could easily, you know, try to run them for another couple of years while looking for a way to uh, to do that to reduce the number of cross-border movements. That, in some cases, will involve uh, doing more in the UK. In most cases, it will involve doing more in the uh, in in the EU. You've got that kind of change to come over what's an investment period, you know, two five years. You are going to see a lot of changes. We've already started seeing that. We've already started seeing companies that are no longer trading across the uh, the border. That's why there are less 
lorry movements going on between uh, UK and France already. Um, so things are things are already changing and they will keep changing. And that, yes, those supply chains all need to be looked at again. So, so here, here's a question. Um, for instance, if I'm a manufacturer in France or Belgium, well, for instance, there was an article in the Financial Times this morning about Flanders, which I know quite well. So I'm a manufacturer in Flanders and I've been depending in the north of Belgium and I've been depending on just-in-time supplies coming in from the UK um, and that's going to get snarled up. Right? Well, I have a range of options. I just have to turn around and look and say, I, I'll go and look in the Netherlands, I'll go and look in Germany, I'll go and look in Italy, Spain or wherever. I look in Hungary, Poland right? and all of those options are open. If I'm if I'm a manufacturer in the UK and my supply lines out of Europe start to get snared up, where do I look? Yeah, you've got where? you've you've got you've got problems. Where you're looking is first of all you're trying to protect your your existing business. You're trying to say to the your customers in the EU, look, I'm going to do everything possible to make sure that you're not inconvenienced. You're going to have to be taking a a cost hit, um, and you may well find that over time that's still going to render you. Un uncompetitive there will still be business done just like at the moment um we still do strange things like you know take car engines to south africa or from south africa and there are trade chains that go on beyond the the eu borders at the moment catalytic converters i think are all are all made in um in macedonia or, or, or north macedonia so you do have some kind of um trade that goes on beyond borders already but it's a different kind of trade. It's no longer a hundred things coming, a hundred things going all in a sort of exact um, timed way. It's going to be a more uncertain thing. Okay, the UK is the best at producing this one thing. What we'll have to do is we'll have to stock that one thing in a warehouse near our production. We'll have to move from just in time to, um, to, to stocking up. And maybe, but maybe we want to do that because the UK is the only producer or not. But those are the kind of questions that people are going to be asking. Those are the kind of what well, they already are doing, and those yeah. are the the changes that are going to be made. I have to confess, three to four years ago, yeah, before this Brexit stuff started happening, I had never heard the phrase "rules of origin." Right? It's not something that meant anything to me or most of the people I work with in our everyday lives, yeah. And yet suddenly, rules of origin appeared to be a major stumbling block in the supply chains and the ability of the UK to send stuff tariff-free back into the European Union. Explain to me, if you can, to a layman, you know, what are rules of origin? Well, it's nice to learn something in your middle ages, Tom. And um, what I think... So, sorry, sorry. Okay. Could, you, could you repeat that, my middle age? I'll live with that. I'll live with that. <laughs> right. You know, what we've got to see here is a trade agreement is zero tariff. If your product can be proved to come from either the UK or the EU. So what you can't do is get a product in from China, badge it made in the UK and send it to uh, the EU for tariff free. That's number, that's number one. So number, if the product though is mostly from the UK and maybe we use just a little bit of uh, in, input from Canada, let's say, that might qualify for the zero tariff. So it's all about the qualification for the zero tariff. But when there are things like qualifications, there are rules there's a lot of rules there are pages of rules in there for specific products how do you prove that product has enough or uh, material in it that's from either the uk or the eu 
And then there are specific rules, such as if you export a product from the EU to the UK, and then without changing it, you want to export it back to the EU, you can't do that tariff-free. So there are all sorts of rules, but it's basically all about what qualifies you for tariff-free uh, goods as opposed to WTO tariffs. Basically, your free trade agreement doesn't actually get rid of all the tariffs. It only gets rid of the tariffs on a conditional basis that you've made the product in the way that qualifies. So uh, let me take an example. Um, I bring in a container load of um, bags of sweets you know, uh, that have been um, manufactured uh, in a plant in Flanders. And I open the container and there's a hundred boxes in the container and I, I keep 80 boxes for distribution in the UK and I put 20 boxes in a smaller truck and send them to Ireland. Those 20 boxes now don't qualify for tariff-free entry into Ireland, do they? That's right. So because Ireland is part of the EU, yeah. The, the change that you've got here is that the UK can no longer be a distribution hub for any EU country. It was primarily a distribution hub for Ireland, but it was for other countries as well. You can no longer you can no longer do things like that. Now that's a there's a that's a small print on why that product can't go EU, UK, EU. The parties could agree to change that, but at the moment they're not going to agree to change the uh, the, the exact uh, details of the uh, of the trade deal. Um, you know, it was negotiated in a hurry, and not everything was thought through terribly well. So that's what's happened there. Um, but yeah, it's another way in which you have to change what's happening in your business. Okay, okay, okay. So I mean, I see in the newspapers, whether it's the Scottish fishermen or the the pork exporters or the or the Welsh lamb exporters or or the musicians um, or whoever, sort of uh, all demanding that the UK get back together with the EU and sort these things out. But it's not as easy as that. Sure, it's not. I mean, this is the, the EU is not going to reopen the negotiation box at this point in time. And if it did, it would be looking for a significant price from the UK. Free trade agreements are really difficult to reopen the negotiations once you've done. That's why you've got to get it right in, 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 uh, in, in one go. Because you've just done this huge negotiation agreement. You've just traded off what your, your priorities. You've got your mandates. You've been through your parliaments. And then someone says, well, can I just do that one again? No, because you already had to make whatever compromises you've had to make. To do it all again, that means open, reopening the mandates. The EU has special processes for uh, for doing that. The UK doesn't, but you still need to say, well, what am I offering? What am I going to get? You're back into the whole negotiating process. There's no quick way to avoid it. Yes, there are a bunch of committees set up within the agreement, but their purpose is not renegotiation. Their purpose is to make sure that what was in the agreement is being implemented consistently. So you've no quick, no shortcut to a renegotiation. There will be stuff negotiated between the UK and the EU, but it will be discrete uh, individual uh, arrangements in, in, in particular areas. There's going to be no big renegotiation in the short term. Okay, so where, for instance, you know, what are the big, leave aside financial services, you know, um, what are the big, the other big from the, issue that's still open and one that's of concern to a lot of people who will be watching and listening to this is the question of data transfers. Now, um, I've seen some suggestions from yourself 
um, on your Twitter feed. And as you know, I'm an ardent follower of you on Twitter. Um, not that you always make sense, but but I, I read it all the same. Um, you've been suggesting that data equivalence is not going to be easily come by. That is the word from people in the European Parliament and people in the EU in the EU system is that, look, there's been a lot of problems in the EU in terms of allowing transfers of, uh, of data outside of the EU. You've had two Schrems cases. You've got multiple challenges. And part of the reason for those challenges it was people saying, we don't trust our personal data if it goes to other countries. Well, part of that trust was, do we trust the security agencies of other countries um, not to uh, not not to inter intervene and, and and look at that data illegally. To do that, you have to have that relationship of of trust. And what I'm hearing from the from the European Parliament is that they don't trust the UK enough, and therefore they don't think, as things stand at the moment, the data that data equivalence, data adequacy can be granted to the UK after the temporary arrangement ends. I think at the end of April. Now that is going to be a big blow for a lot of services companies um, not being able to move their data. Again, it's going to mean change in the way uh, in the way you run your your business. Um, uh, and is 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 not. A, tell me if you're hearing this um, from your sources. Is not one of the concerns that if there was a data adequacy decision granted to the UK, the concern would be that the UK might then, you know. On export, onward export the data to, to the US, especially, you know, with security data and the five eyes, uh, coalition between the US and Canada and the UK, New Zealand and Australia around intelligence information. The five yeah. eyes. Yeah. No, there's just not that level of, of trust in the, in the UK, uh, security situation or frankly in the UK US relationship. Although at the moment, that's not a particularly strong relationship. So let me throw sort of a one from left field at you. Um, we saw a new president inaugurated in the US yesterday. Um, let me put it this way. I think the presidency that was inaugurated yesterday will be very different from the presidency we've seen over the last four years. Uh, what's your views now on the chances of a UK-US trade deal? In the short term, very low. Um, President Biden is focused on his domestic agenda, number one, and to the extent he's focused on an international agenda, he wants to rebuild ties with the EU, and he wants to do that in a way to try to make things happen on China. So these these are you know big big power matters. The UK is out of the room now. We're a kind of ally stroke supplicant on uh, on on these matters. That's not going to happen. But before people in the EU get sort of over overexcited about that, I can see a situation in a couple of years' time when maybe US-EU relations aren't going so well because on trade, which they often aren't, and the UK comes along again and says, "Look, we'll sign, we'll sign whatever you want us to sign. Um, can we have a trade deal?" And the US will say, "Okay, sign here." So mm. it could still happen. I think in the 2023 would be uh, would be a possible. Yeah. I'll tell me, um, one thing that President Biden has done is he's made it absolutely crystal clear that he regards the Irish peace process and the Good Friday Agreement as sacrosanct. 
doesn't that cause problems for the Johnson government in the, if it gets any notions of trying to uh, walk away from the Irish protocol? Yeah, that you know, so you've got Northern Ireland in a different state to the rest of the UK at the moment under the withdrawal agreement. There's a lot of concern about that in unionist communities in, in Northern Ireland. There's a kind of, the UK government is not really on top of this issue about understanding it, doesn't really understand why President Biden is so fixated on, um, on, on the peace process, thinks he's generally wrong about what he's, what he's saying. There's a lot of room for the UK government to, to get things wrong. Um, and it could well get things get things wrong, and uh, it is on a pretty pretty risky path. I mean, the average Englishman uh, is not a great expert on Ireland. Usually, makes things worse. So I'm kind of, you know, to to be, just be treated as okay by you, Tom, is generally about as good a compliment as an Irishman can pay an Englishman. Yeah, well, you, I appreciate your knowledge of these matters, and you know, it's welcome. It's welcome. But you know, let me finish with a question. I mean, you said there the UK government is not on top of the issues associated with the Irish protocol. Is the UK government actually on top of any of the issues associated with Brexit? Uh, so let me give you an example. Now, um, for the last week, the newspapers have carried a series of articles suggesting that uh, the business secretary is actively looking at tearing up the 48-hour working time directive legislation um, and, you know, scrapping some of the rules in that around holiday pay, the the inclusion of overtime pay and holiday pay, uh, the recording of working hours uh, and so on. Um, Doesn't that sort of talk crash up against the commitment made over level playing field whereby the UK committed not to row back on existing labour and environmental standards? And isn't that going to put other issues at risk if three weeks in, ink hardly dry, and they're already talking about tearing up labour rules? Yeah, let's. You no, know, this this is a this is a big subject, and it's not that well understood. So let's just take this step by step. You've got within the UK EU um, agreement several different ways in which the EU can take action if the UK deregulates on labour or on the environment, or if it diverges if the EU raises standards and the UK doesn't follow. You've got climate change targets put in there. So all of this goes further than any other previous trade agreement. Now, let's also look at what happened in the last month of UK-EU talks, where insofar as we can see it, UK industry went to the UK Prime Minister and said, we can't afford to have tariffs. If If there ends up being no deal and tariffs, Nissan, for example, or Vauxhall, we're going to be leaving the UK, and that's not going to look good for for the UK, you as Prime Minister. So he had to do a deal in which he didn't get what he wanted, for example, on fish. So put those two together. The EU now has, informally, a great pressure on the on the UK. A lot of people talk about, oh, the UK could, sorry, the EU could take the UK to uh, dispute settlements to try to enforce tough rules if the UK threatens to diverge. It hopes not even to get that far. What it hopes to do is that the UK says it's going to diverge. Okay, we'll ignore the chapter. The UK actually puts some plans forward to diverge. And the EU, if it is so minded, just says, if you do that, we will maybe put tariffs on your cars. 
do you really want to carry on doing that, UK? Now, that is how the, the EU wants this to, uh, to work. Um, if need be, they, you know, they may have to prove that they're willing to actually take action. But you then have a situation where the UK is constantly having to think, how is the EU going to react? And this is going to come in a number of different fields as well. It's going to come in financial services or in data. You've got these situations. The UK is going to have to say, is the policy I want to put forward going to affect EU trade? They may not think of that, but they'll soon be made aware of it by companies. This is going to affect. You should be aware of this. So the UK has been put in a position of um, weakness with regard to the EU. And I don't think the UK government is fully aware of how this is going to work. And they need to find out pretty soon. Yeah, I know the way sometimes these things work. Well, before you can do that, you're going to have to take us to a tribunal and the other guy looks at you and smiles and says, good luck with that, you know. Um, and then this stuff begins to seep into the psychology of your decision making, where you, as you rightly say, you start wondering, um, well, if I do that, what's going to happen? But isn't all of this, and this is the final question I put to you, and, you know, uh, this time around, because I'm sure we're going to get you back in a few months' time to say, uh, and how has it gone in the meantime since we last talked? Um, look, you're a seasoned trade expert. You've been involved in trade negotiations. I'm a seasoned labour relations negotiator. I've been involved in labour negotiations for 50 years. In my own view, and would you disagree? In my own view, there is no conceivable way on God's good earth that you can negotiate a 1,260 page document of the complexity that is the TCA, the UK-EU agreement, in about eight or nine months. It is just a physical impossibility because you won't know the half of what you've agreed to and it will unravel and we're seeing it unravel. Negotiate in haste, repent at leisure. You can't negotiate 1,250 pages or more specifically to the number of pages, never mind the number of pages. You can't negotiate a 700 billion pound annual trade relationship in nine months because you don't know what's important. And this is what the UK is finding. Oh, if only we'd have thought to negotiate that piece of paper away or this, or actually we needed that because it's the granularity of what you're actually negotiating. And that I think is what you mean by kind of negotiating in, in, in haste and then, and then regret it is because you're never getting to the actual detail of what matters here. Whereas the, and, and particularly this was one-sided in the UK-EU negotiations. The EU has negotiated many times before. It has a pretty established process for running, for talking with it, member states, for talking with their specialists. They've got a pretty good idea what they want. The UK doesn't. We didn't know this piece of paper would be important or that piece of, or that piece of paper. Net result, we haven't got all these things in there. We didn't get the musician thing. Now, we didn't prioritize it, but what we didn't do is we didn't take the time. What seems to have happened on musicians is the UK, the UK said, we want it like this. The EU said, we want it like this. Totally different. And it just kind of fell because there wasn't time to cut, to resolve what the actual problems were there. Now the UK loses, therefore. So the UK has not got anything. Whereas if you'd have had another year, the UK could have found a way to say, OK, well, how about if we take this from your position, this, and we run through the detail? But the UK did not want to do that, did not want to focus on the uh, on the detail. And the EU were quite happy to just um, take it on that on that uh, on that basis. 
because the EU assume we are in the in the driving seat. Now it will give problems to the EU. This is not all one way. The EU has to think about, you know, how it responds to future UK requests. But um, it's mostly hit the uh, the UK so far. So to sum it up, the EU happily let the UK have the headlines during the negotiation, while the EU quietly got on with the detail. No, and the e the UK were happy with the headlines but paid very, very little attention to the details, and now it's coming back to bite it. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, so you, listen, if you're doing the detail, that's what, yeah, if you're doing, going for headlines, you get the headlines. They got, the UK government got the headlines. Yeah. So listen, David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. As I said a few moments ago, um, you know, we're only three weeks into disagreement, and already we're seeing enormous difficulties raising their head, and I'm sure we're going to see further difficulties in the weeks and months ahead. So maybe in three or four months' time, you come back and talk to us and say, now that we're six months down the road, how's it looking? David Henning, thank you very much. Uh, for those of you watching, as we always do at the end of a Berg meeting, I think it's time for you to have that evening aperitif, no matter where you are, because it's always six o'clock somewhere. See you next time.